Welcome to Typecast, Boston's new play podcast. I'm your host, Darren Eppins, the Managing Director of Boston Playwrights Theatre, the home for new plays in Boston. In this podcast series, we'll be diving deep into the new play ecosystem of Beantown, talking with playwrights, directors, actors, and theater makers of all types about the process of bringing a new play into the world. In this episode, we are joined by a dream team of three collaborators who recently launched a new one-person play, Mr. Parent, at the Lyric Stage Company of Boston. First up is Melinda Lopez, the award-winning playwright and actress. From 2013 to 2019, she was the Mellon Foundation Playwright-in-Residence at the Huntington Theatre Company, and she is currently the artist-in-residence there. She teaches at Northeastern University and right here in our MFA playwriting program at BU. And watch out, Melinda has an evil plan to put complex, flawed, and astonishing women center stage. Also with us today is Maurice Emmanuel Parent, actor, singer, dancer, teacher, artistic director, and more, but I've run out of time to list them all. Maurice is a mainstay on Boston stages and is currently performing as the eponymous Mr. Parent. He is also on the theater faculty at Tufts University and is the co-producing artistic director of the Front Porch Arts Collective, a black theater company committed to advancing racial equity in Boston through theater. The Front Porch recently began an innovative three-year partnership with the Huntington Theater Company. And last but not least is Megan Sandberg-Zakian, a theater director focusing on the development of vital new American plays for the stage and the ear, something we like very much here on this podcast. She is an author, facilitator, and a co-founder of Maya Directors, a consulting group for artists and organizations engaging with stories from the Middle East and beyond. And her first book, There Must Be Happy Endings, on a theater of optimism and honesty, is available from The Third Thing Press. Welcome to Typecast, Melinda, Maurice, and Megan. Thanks for having, having us. I would love to dive in, dive right on in on this collaboration. The program for Mr. Parent says that the play is by Melinda, with Maurice, and conceived with and directed by Megan. And of course, Maurice performs the title role. So how did that all work? Like, what was the process of creation? It started um, from Megan Sandberg's idea. We were in rehearsal for... um, skeleton crew at the Huntington and she was directing and uh, I started telling all these stories on every break about my years and teaching in in BPS and um, Megan saw potential and actually she tells the story much better so I'm going to put you on the spot Megan (laughs) take it away (laughs) so uh, yes Um, Maurice was telling all of these amazing stories when we were in rehearsal for skeleton crew on breaks um, and uh not only were they deeply felt, you know, he was thinking so much about the kids that he um, had spent so much time with over the past five years, but the stories were incredibly entertaining. You know, Maurice just, you, I, I, I would normally have said, we have to get back to rehearsal now, but you know, it was just like, you just wanted to listen. You wanted to listen to him. And um, I mean, as a storyteller, you know, when you hear a story, that's incredibly powerful, listenable, engaging, um, important and universal because you're just leaning into it. Right. You know? And so I, that's what it was like. You were, we were all 
everyone in the room was leaning into these stories. And so um, I knew that there was something there. And I, I think we, we keep telling this story about the genesis of, of, um, of the show, because I think we've gone back over and over again to what's important about um, what's, what's important to stay true to in the making of the play is um, Maurice needing to tell these stories, Maurice being in a place of, of these stories have to come out of me because this experience was transformative and I need to tell the stories aloud to process the experience uh, uh, that I had in, in this, um, in the school. And to that point, I hadn't even, I didn't realize why I was telling stories. I had always, I was in uh, EPS for five years. I was always telling stories randomly about my experience, but some about this show, I just couldn't stop myself. And they were coming out. It's because it was the first show I had done um, after deciding to leave um, um, EPS. So I was really processing all those mixed emotions about having left and um and uh megan said maybe there's a one-man show here and i said i'm not a i'm not a writer there's not and then she <laughs> unbeknownst to me it was like well what if we got melinda lopez to write it would you do it i was like well melinda wrote it of course i would have to do it and unbeknownst to me she hadn't even <laughs> reached out to melinda yet she was like you know hedging her bets there <laughs> yeah and so i got a call uh from megan saying hey i have this idea and uh well actually megan you tell it better <laughs> You're the storyteller. Megan's actually the storyteller. You tell the story. Love it. Uh, so I, in a fit of inspiration, right, said to Maurice, um, what if Melinda Lopez wrote it? And Maurice said, well, then I would have to do it. So I, call, I called Melinda. I got about 10 seconds into the call. Melinda, I have this idea. I really think Maurice has a solo show about his time as a teacher. She was like, yes. What do you need? When do we start? <laughs> um, and it was just so beautiful because it was, you know, the three of us had different different kinds of relationships um, in our time in Boston as theater makers and certainly as fans of each other's work and um, uh, and collaborators in different kinds of ways. But I think for all three of us, there was something about the um, sort of catalytic power of the three of us coming together around this project that has always from the very beginning felt like it was kind of meant to be um, and always easy to say yes to at every iteration, which is not always the case um, with every project that you do. Um, so we uh, we met at some point um, and turned on a tape recorder and uh, uh, Megan and I, you know, Maury, Megan had heard some of the stories. I'd heard none of the stories and we just started recording and we had like, I don't know, maybe four or five sessions where we, where Maurice just talked and told stories and stories. And, um, I and we sat there laughing hysterically, <laughs> laughing, <laughs> laughing, <laughs> laughing, laughing, laughing the whole time. No, tell the one about the, tell the one about the, and, um, I transcribed them and out of that transcription, looked for a, a journey and you know we came up I came up with a very sort of rough Anna Devere Smithy kind of disorganization of what seemed like a, a journey what seemed like big change what seemed like uh you know leaning into love and leaning into um transformation um and then the script went through a number of uh, of you know that was like five hours long right <laughs> there was so much in it circling back to, you know, getting more and more specific. And, and we talked a lot, um, especially in the later versions of um, 
how we wanted to represent children, how we wanted to represent teachers, how we want to represent people who dedicate their lives to this work, and also artists and actors. Um, um, and the this is Megan, Megan brought in this language, but like how you grow into being your full self and how you create spaces where you are allowed to be everything that you are. So Melinda crept in there um, in some of the ways that links were created and, and the, uh, the, um, the, the connective tissue of the play and um, also my deep, um, you know, uh, like, why do we do theater? What, why does it matter? How am I spending my time doing this thing that is so, uh, that evaporates? And so sort of larger questions of how we construct a life that's meaningful. And then I think the final part of the piece that came together in the form that it's in now had to do with this really important um, collaboration collaborator that's not here, Nima Avashia, and uh, uh, who brought in the the real brass tacks, like on the ground knowledge of the Boston Public Schools, and because we recognized that the play needed a context um, that was. Um, deeply political and um, um, and that gave footing uh, this question of not, you know, I was not, I failed, but how the system perpetuates uh, lack of support and lack of success for people in the industry. And I, th- I feel like that's like the really critical last part. Um, and, you know, to get back to your question, Darren, of like, how did we do it? Like we did it together all the time like it was the most collaborative process i've ever been through together all the time which is not something you necessarily think of with a solo performance which right you know i sort of uh, even though you know there's a whole team behind someone who's on stage by themselves um solo performance kind of necessarily feels solo um related to that melinda you've created some award-winning one-person shows before, uh, such as Mala, which you performed yourself. Do you approach the writing of a one-person show different than with a show that has multiple performers? Is there any difference in your approach to that? Well, I mean, writing a one-person show is very different than writing a multi-character show, but writing a one-person show for another actor is not different than writing a one-person show for myself. So like, that's, that's weird and interesting. Um, and I, and I'll just say, I guess I, I write a lot from inside a play. Um, and so like what organically feels like it makes sense in the next moment. Um, that's what I lean into. And then I'm able to look at a complete draft and, you know, um, see where it veers off or see where it needs to be strengthened. But, you know, in this case in particular, like Megan was really instrumental in saying, I think that's actually not the story we're telling. I think the story we're telling is here. So there were things like really lifting up um, the the spine of the um, uh, a journey of a queer man. Um, I mean, of course, it's very much a story of a of a of a black actor and a and a black teacher, but it and it's also a story of Boston. But, you know, Megan is someone who was outside of both, not Maurice and not Melinda, as this as this intelligence kind of looking at like 
actually what is the journey, what matters most. If, if something has to go, let it be this part, because this is really where I'm leaning in. Yeah, Megan, do you want to say anything about that? I mean, I, I think that I brought in, you know, it's so it's really moving to hear you talk about the ways that Melinda crept into it. <laughs> this is such a personal, Maurice's personal story. It's so, it appears, if you see it, to be 150% about Maurice Emanuel Parent. But actually, I mean, I feel like my, the, the, the process of working on the show was transformative for me in terms of answering the questions that I have about being a queer person, about being a, a, a theater artist and queer and not white and living in Boston and uh, someone who actually studied education as an undergraduate and spent the first half of my career working with kids um, that uh, that I realized that I had some really huge existential and sort of like heart questions that um, got worked out in this process around um, figuring out what the story was that we wanted to tell. And I think it's part of the reason that so many different people are responding so strongly to the, the play um, is that it, it actually does have some of the big heart questions from all three of us, even though it appears to be one person's story. And then I think it actually has some of those from um, Anima as well in it too, who is also another uh, queer brown person living in Boston. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, I have found that the more I that I've brought myself more into this process. Um, than I ever have in the development of any other new play. Um, even though it's about Maurice, or maybe because it's about Maurice. All right, Maurice. So the stories are yours with uh, some additional information from Boston Public Schools, as we heard. And um, you said earlier that these stories just came out of you. You couldn't not tell them. So I wonder when you decided, okay, let's work on this play. Um, did you have any goals in mind when you started the process? If so, what were the goals? Did you meet them? Did they change over time? Sure. Um, the goal all the time, which kind of keeps me grounded, is um, uh, just to reveal and to uh, like honor that time and honor the, the humans that get the that touched my life at that time and honor the work. Cause I really am just so moved by, and I think you really hit the nail on the head. Like usually a one person show, this is my first time ever doing one, but my thought would be, as you articulate it, it's very much about that person. It's very much, especially if it's about their life or whatever, but it's truly, I don't, it's, this sounds a little cliche. I don't feel alone on the stage. I feel I'm with them, the people that collaborated, even like stage management, everyone has collaborated to make this and I, they were literally on stage with me. And then um, the way that it's been curated and crafted by Megan and Melinda and, um, and you know, the way Melinda like orchestrated the stories and the experience is only starting to come more true to me now as I'm like inside of it after a couple of weeks, I'm like, oh, oh, this is, oh, wow, what a gift. You know, so it's like the ways that the stories have been crafted and the, knowing that the, the humans that they're based on are present, but it's only parts of them to make characters that I can bring alive. So my goal is always to, um, just to honor uh, the work, honor the piece, honor the people, 
and uh, also honor the people in the audience and hoping that they take something from the story to go out and make a change, even if it's on a personal level, even if, if it's if it's politically, even if it's in the communities, even if it's just having more knowledge about this system and how it applies to if they're part of that system, well, we are a part of the system as residents of Massachusetts, but even if you're direct part of the education system, educational system, or if hearing these stories helps you see the systems you are a part of in new ways. So it's really a gift that I get to be, you know, I'm like serving is something is war, larger than just me talking about my life. <laughs> you are mentioned there being part of the system. And I, I noticed, Megan, you mentioned a minute ago that you started your career uh, teaching young folks in education. Uh, Melinda, you are a, a teacher, an educator. You, you teach in our program here at uh, BU, but also Northeastern and Wellesley. And uh, Maurice, of course, you taught for five years in BPS and also at university. So you're all educators. Um, in addition to being theater makers, does being a teacher or an educator impact your theater craft? Like what, what, does, that, what does being an educator mean to you in terms of your work in the theater? For me, uh, it's funny, right now my uh, job is I'm a professor of the practice at Tufts and I've been there for a few years. and. I was, I've been meditating on these years that are on stage and alive for me and Mr. Parent that I'm getting to revisit as it relates to my current position. And uh, uh, it's funny how spending my formative years with younger people in, uh, as an educator is informing my, my, pra my educational practice right now, especially around educating through the theater. Cause you have to, with young people, you have to meet them. They say, meet the student where you are, where they are. And I think that's so important in any classroom, even if you're teaching young adults, but it's even more important when you're talking about the theater and, and I, mean, I teach acting. So I'm teaching um, students who tap into their humanity and make these other people come alive on the, on the, on the page. And you have to meet people where they are in that journey and where they're able to accept it. And I mean, they've had to meet me where I was. I mean, you know, God bless, you know, my director, my, and my, my, uh, the play right here, because there were moments where I just was on planet Saturn. I was on Saturn and they were trying to bring me back to earth and they had to meet me on Saturn to bring me back down. So, um, you know, thinking what we do is it, so much about meeting the person where they are on the journey, knowing where they'll get to um, eventually. You know, my experience in learning my craft has always relied very heavily on intuition. Like this feels right, so let's try it. Or this, I really liked that show, or I'm so excited to talk about this play. Um, but when you're, uh, teaching, um, you have to say, okay, why did that work for me? Why did I lean in? What's the mechanism behind this, uh, show that I just love? Like, can I dissect it? Can I, can I deconstruct it so that I can talk about, um, choices, artistic choices, right? So when you're the one making the artistic choices, you don't have to justify them. Um, you know, people come or they don't. But when you're trying to um, uh, bring a classroom or, you know, undergraduates or graduate students or people who have never written or people who have written plays their whole lives, you have to communicate the uh, skeleton. You have to you have to do the biology. Right. Um, and 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 so that doesn't come naturally like that's like you actually have to 
read and study and learn and think and talk to artists and like have a different, have a lot of different kinds of perspectives. And then you have to figure out, well, what am I going to give these people to read? What am I going to say in this critique that like Maurice says, is going to meet them where they are that they can hear. Right. And sometimes when you're critiquing one student's work, it's really for the benefit of the students in the class because the playwright actually can't hear what you're saying because they're a mess. They're like, Oh my God, my show. Uh, but but you're actually teaching the people who are watching. So, um, you know, that's just a very interesting process. And and I, I'm a person who likes to learn and uh, I like to learn new things. And so for me, it's been really great because it, it helps me look at my own work and say, this is the moment that I is in the way of the climax. And so I love this, but it has to go because it doesn't work. Right. And I can tell you why it doesn't work. So that's really helpful and important. And I don't know that I would be able to do that if I didn't teach. I love working with that, with that part of you, Melinda, too, because you're just constantly curious as a playwright um, uh, all the way through the process. And, and Melinda also brings the actor's perspective, too, which is just really cool and unique to collaborate with a writer who um, has that educator curiosity that that writer's um, poeticism and that sort of actors like uh, mechanical brain mechanics of how something works and breaks down. I love that. Um, yeah, I definitely would not. I, I, I am drawn to working in educational settings and working in theater settings for the exact same reason. Um, I don't see them as, as separable at all. And I think that for me, it's about um, feeling like my calling in life is to hold space for people to uh, bring their full selves into. Um, and I, I've always said that. And I remember when Nima, our education consultant, um, said that she thought that that was what made a successful teacher. Uh, I remember feeling this like incredible resonance with it. And that it also brought me to tears because she was basically saying that the systems were making it impossible for teachers to hold that space. Like that the teachers are being yanked, their arms are being yanked apart and they can't, they can't hold on to those spaces for their students anymore. Um, and how painful that is. Uh, of course, many, many of them, including Nima are still succeeding at doing that in incredible ways. Um, the other thing that I've carried with me, which I can't remember if I've shared this before with Maurice and Melinda, is that at the beginning of my when I was in college and I was about to graduate, I thought that I was going to be, um, I thought that I was going to go into public education. My major in school was education reform, uh, like structural education reform. And um, my final semester in college, I went to this uh, symposium at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, uh, led by Shirley Bryce Heath, who's a um, a linguist anthropologist. And she had done this like very, very long, uh, like 10 year longitudinal study of uh, youth in arts organizations. And uh, she was specifically looking at language development, but she found that um, language development was related to all this other kinds of human development, um, empathy, risk-taking, you know, things like that. Um, and uh, she, the first thing she did was at the beginning of her study, um, she was studying uh, like after school programs for kids that did sports, community service and the arts. And she stopped studying sports and community service because she was like, the arts are so far beyond these other things in terms of language development. But then one of the big findings in her research was um, 
that she had to focus on programs that were not only after school, but that were actually not in school buildings because uh, the language development um, gains for young people were so debilitated by school contexts um, that all of the ways that school systems, uh, the, the kinds of constraints of time and space, the kinds of rules and the kinds of arbitrary uh, uh, punitive uh, energies that came into those spaces um, were so uh, were just were curtailed all of that development that she was seeing in out of school um, time and space. So I that but that one piece of research was so persuasive to me that I went and worked for uh, a youth theater organization that was not connected to a school in that moment. And I and that's what I've done for the rest of my career. But I. I, I have felt during the course of this process really long. Um, over the course of this process, I've felt like um, an interest in what would happen if I re-engaged with, um, with school settings in some kind of way. All right. Amazing, all of you. I hate to break up the flow, but we do need to take a short break for this month's podcast sponsor. But when we come back... We're going to delve deeper into Mr. Parent and, of course, also play a little fun game at the end of the episode. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Are you tired of your glasses fogging up whenever you put a face mask on? I know I am. Having my glasses fog up is almost worse than catching COVID. That's why I am so excited to share this amazing new product, the Fog Fracker. The Fog Fracker is a miniature air conditioning unit that you attach to the top of your glasses. Much like a car windshield defogger, the Fog Fracker blows cool, dry air across the surface of your specs, eliminating that unwanted breath miasma with the push of a button. Utilizing cutting-edge carbon nanofiber tubal technology, this ultralight and ultra-small AC is now provisionally approved for consumer use by the Hazardous Materials Safety Association. That's right. You can be the first to get in on this completely safe new technology just by throwing your John Hancock on Fogfracker's liability waiver and non-disclosure agreement. And don't worry, Fogfracker knows you care about style too. So these units come in designer colors and patterns like Veryberry, Tiger Print, and Slushy. Go to fogfracker.com slash typecast and enter code FUFOG for a special discount only for our listeners. And then you too can join me and frack that fog with Fog Fracker. All right, we are back. And I want to pop back over to Maurice because Melinda mentioned that the original draft of this play was about five hours long and had so many stories and they had to be formed and edited, of course. So I'm just wondering, uh, that made me think, are there any particular favorite stories that didn't make it into the final play that you love to share with us or does that put you on the spot too much uh no it doesn't there's one um actually uh uh this sounds it's ingenuous and you know not just because of you they actually incorporated all of my favorite stories in some way shape or form there's an aspect of one that they took out that was appropriate to take out so it's i i am so privileged to work with two people i trust like implicitly so um but uh one that is, did not make it in that i use as a um 
like as an epilogue when we did the first workshop. Um, should I tell it now? Is it? I can make it pretty. Sorry. So we called. And it's actually a borrowed story from a colleague uh, on the parish. She, she, she gave me permission to 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 borrow it. And then the kids' names. Um, we used to call them just Whitney and Bobby. I don't know what their real names were. We call them Whitney and Bobby, kindergartners. And this whole nature versus nurture thing, bump that. Like there's so much personality in us at such a young age. That's the biggest thing I learned being in that schoolhouse. So it was like these two kindergartners, little boy and little girl, had a crush on each other. At lunch, they would hold hands and they would walk together and they would sit next to each other at playtime. But then another little boy came to school. So the Whitney girl had a crush on him. So then the following week, she's walking around with this other kid and holding hands and sharing lunch boxes and juice boxes and all that stuff. So the Bobby character's like arms folded in the corner, like face all twisted up, just angry, you know? And then the following week, she would come back to Bobby. So then they would walk around and share little juice boxes and, and you know, and, and, and cereal packs, you know, whatever you eat at breakfast. So then um, with the babies. And then, uh, so after about a couple weeks of Whitney going back and forth between the two guys, uh, Bobby goes to her and says, again, I, I don't know her real name, but we just call her Whitney. He'd be like, Whitney, I've given you this many chances. He's one of 10 hands, I'm 10 fingers. I'm giving you this many chances, but now, I'm done. And he shakes his hands in his face and walks out and ends the relationship. Four years old. I was like, if I had that kind of focus in getting out of toxic relationships, I'd be married right now. <laughs> that is amazing. Oh, Whitney and Bobby. <laughs> um, Megan, your book that just recently came out has a subtitle on a theater of optimism and honesty. And having read the script, I know there's certainly plenty of honesty in this play, but what about Mr. Parent do you find optimistic? For me, Mr. Parent is the perfect happy ending, has the perfect happy ending um, in the sense of uh, it's an ending that can hold um, all of the fullness of human experience. It's a, it's, you know, that uh, I guess spoiler alert, um, I think that um, in the play, uh, and especially not just in reading the script of the play, but in the experience of witnessing um, Maurice perform the play, uh, you really understand that Maurice is working to be his full self on stage, present with the audience in a way that was not possible um, for him when he was experiencing the events that he's describing that were in the past. Um, and there's an incredible uh, uh, ability to, um, for, for him to, to deeply feel and express um, all of the hard things, all of the grief. Um, and the, one of the biggest things I learned in writing the book and that hopefully comes through in the book uh, um, is that actually when we stop being afraid of our deep experiences of grief and pain and rage um, and despair uh, and allow ourselves to fully feel them, um, we actually open up our capacity for joy and delight and pleasure. Um, and, and that's why the ending is happy to me that it, in the very final moment of the play, really, we see a person who has allowed himself to experience all of the grief and the loss and the challenge and the distress um, and really acknowledge how devastating it is so that the moment of um, delight and connection and pleasure when it comes can be fully felt. And, and I think 
for the character, his impact on um, his students can be fully felt and understood as well as their impact on him. So yeah, so for me, it's like the perfect happy ending. Um, I'd be curious to talk to, to you after you see it or audience members after they see it, if they find um, that it's a happy ending and that and what's hopeful for me about it is that watching it, um, if if this character and this, per, and this actor um, can be their full selves, then it fills me with hope that that's possible for me too and that that's possible for all of us. Well, we all could certainly use some more happy endings, that's for sure. Um, that does kind of lead into my last question, which I'm going to pose to you, Melinda, which is, um, why should people want to go see this play? Oh, well, because it's theater, one, in this moment, two, um, uh, um, Maurice is such an extraordinarily charismatic and gifted performer. Um, you know, we, we didn't mention uh, and, and thank the playwrights who allowed us to sample some of their work. So you're going to hear as well as Lopez and, and Parent, you're going to hear Kushner, you're going to hear O'Hara, you're going to hear Shakespeare. Um, uh, and I think as Megan said, you know, I think a great piece of theater um, allows us to feel a range of emotions. Um, it's intellectually stimulating. It's politically activating. Um, you know, we've had comments from people in more privileged, coming from more privileged circumstances saying, I didn't know that this was happening. So I feel like it hits all of the sweet spots for me that theater does. It enlightens, it, it moves it makes you laugh and laugh and laugh. And it's 90 minutes, you know, which like I'm all for, right? Like one act, 90 minutes, it's yummy. And, yeah. uh, you know, honestly, I just think Maurice is such an extraordinary performer that you would be remiss if you didn't see him at his best. And he is at his best. Sorry, everyone else in Boston theater who's ever worked for him with him. He is at his best right now. <laughs> <laughs> just take that, Maurice. Just, just, just. Just take it. Just to add, as if I haven't already gilded the lily, um, you know, Maurice is also uh, leading the most exciting theater company right now, the Front Porch Arts Collective. Like he is shaking up the city. He's going to change the landscape of the city and he's going to be a national leader. You know, he already is a national leader. Like you're going to look back on this moment and go, oh, I saw him right before it all blew up for him so that's oh another God. reason to see him i know Yay. our listeners don't have the privilege of seeing me squirm <laughs> nearly pass out from that was the, i i'm that's kindness beyond words i'm just honored i don't lie yeah okay i don't lie to you yeah <laughs> you can also say that you heard him here on this podcast first um this podcast about playwriting, that's what we're here to talk uh, mostly about. So, of course, that means we do need to do some playwriting. We're going to take a couple minutes here and craft a new short monologue uh, in a process that I'm calling Bad Libs. And um, I've got here a, a short monologue, certain words missing. And I'm going to ask Melinda and Megan to continue their collaboration, their tight collaboration that we've heard about. So, uh, on this podcast, fill in those missing words, sight unseen, and then Maurice 
is going to read this newly completed monologue <laughs> called uh do we have it are we ready to try this yes <laughs> all right so i'll start with you uh megan give me a noun mouse all right and melinda can i have a name please patricia patricia very good and megan a body part mm, um eyelash all right and melinda a plural noun formica tables formica <laughs> tables great megan <laughs> an adjective please adjective uh wilted wait is that an adjective sure melinda body parts plural uh uh phalanges oh lucky you maurice uh and uh megan a noun wall sconce wall sconce did you just look around the room mm -hmm. I, yeah i <laughs> math right, words are very difficult if you did not really learn your parts of speech that yeah. well in class so i sort of have to look around and, and figure out which is which it is kind of amazing to me how how playwrights don't know their parts of speech so far on these podcasts. <laughs> we all failed English. Right. <laughs> all right. Last one. You, Melinda, is uh, another name. Colette. That's my cat. My cat is Colette. I love it. <laughs> all right, Maurice, I'm going to share my screen. And I'm uh, going to ask you to read this out um we've got the words we need this monologue is actually from your past maurice i know you're going to be able to leap into character immediately it is from the beginning of the iconic musical man of la mancha <laughs> that's brilliant can you can you see the monologue on your screen i can all right so you take it away whenever you're ready all right Ah, <sighs> little warm up. I shall impersonate a mouse. Come, enter into my imagination and see him. His name, Patricia. A country squire, no longer young. Bony, hollow-faced, eyelashes that burn with the fire of inner vision. That's good. Being retired, he has much time for formica tables. He studies them from morn to night and often through the night as well. And all he reads oppresses him, fills him with indignation at man's wilted ways toward man. He broods and broods and broods. And finally, from so much brooding, his phalanges dry up. He lays down the melancholy burden of sanity and conceives the strangest project ever imagined to become a wall sconce <laughs> and sally forth into the world to right all wrongs. No longer shall he be plain Patricia, but a dauntless knight known as Colette. <laughs> I am I. I am I, Don Colette. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, my goodness. Wow. The act of creation uh, just captured live right here. Incredible. 
Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for indulging uh, me and our audience in that, all three of you. So good. And thank you so much for talking with us today. I want to give you a quick hype moment uh, for each of you if you want to um, talk about any project that you've got coming up that our listeners should be looking out for. Well, come see Mr. Parent. Uh, we run through February 6th at the Lyric stage. And then uh, I'm working on Young Nerds and of Color. And then two weeks oh. after that, streaming. And two weeks after that, streaming. Yes, thank you, Megan. Streaming, streaming. Buy your tickets and you can stream from the comfort of your phalanges. Um, and uh, I have uh, Young Nerds of Color coming up at Central Square Theater in uh, February, March. All right, Maurice, what do you got coming up after Mr. Parent, if you know? rest <laughs> i'm going somewhere i don't know where it, it might be in my backyard laying on some grass for a couple hours and then um uh but then uh teaching classes uh then i go into we've already started doing some workshops i'll be at the huntington and common ground revisited the end of their season and before that i'll be directing for the front porch to try production front porch central square and greater boston stage production of Ain't Misbehaving that'll be at both of those locations uh, early, late spring, early summer. Ooh, that sounds juicy. And I would like to, I would, I would love if everyone would buy my book. You're the third thing press called There Must Be Happy Endings on a Theater of Optimism and Honesty. Um, and uh, let me know what you think. Yay. I happened to look that up uh, a little earlier in preparation for this uh, podcast. So if, you, um, if you're interested in Megan's amazing book, uh, you can check out her website, uh, megansz.com, and get all the information about that there as well. Um, yes, as Melinda said, Mr. Parent running right now at the Lyric Stage Company of Boston th live through February 6th and then streaming after that. So if you're not feeling comfortable getting out into the theater space, you can still see this amazing performance. Um, I have to tell you, this play is funny. You've heard about it, it's poignant. The stories are outrageous. You don't wanna miss it. Uh, grab your mask or click your computer, get out there and support new plays, lyricstage.com for info and tickets. And uh, with that, we're gonna wrap it up. Thanks everybody for listening in. I'm Darren Evans and this is Typecast. Today's episode was written, produced and edited by Darren Evans. The theme music is Off to Osaka and the final credits music is Malt Shop Bop, both by Kevin McLeod. You can find his incredibly wide ranging music at incompetech.com. That's I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H.com. For more information about Boston Playwrights Theatre, including our spring season of new plays, visit bostonplaywrights.org.